We've been talking about purpose for the last few weeks, and, and we will be continuing to talk about purpose for another few weeks. Uh, I see us ending this probably at the beginning of December. You know, we, we've had a lot of great feedback, a lot of people coming up and saying, hey, you know, we're just so grateful that, that you know, God is speaking and he's, and he's transforming me and he's transforming people in my family, and, and we're grateful for that kind of feedback, and, um, and that's really what it's about. You know, really, this is not about having some series that's really good or liking it. It's really about transformation. And, and our prayer is that everything that is said, really, you know, you're going to hear things that you're going to disagree with and it's going to just fill you with joy. You're going to hear some things that are going to challenge you, and both are good. And our prayer is that this, you would really allow God to open your heart and speak to you and then move you to where he wants you to be. Last week... We brought up the third purpose for your life, and Rick Warren says that the third purpose for your life is that you and I were created to become like Christ. We were created to become like Christ. And we read Romans chapter 8, verse 29, and I read from the message, and it says, God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. And we see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him, there in Jesus. This means that God wants to shape and form us into the likeness of Jesus. And what it says is that as we read his word, as we read the gospels, and we see how Jesus walked and lived and moved and talked and acted, that in that we see a picture of how we are supposed to be. Last week, we mentioned that when God talks about shaping us into his likeness, he's not talking about our personalities, he's not talking so much about our our skill sets and abilities, but he's talking about our character. You know, we also talked about what character is. That was the main focus. What is character? When you think of character, you don't think about skill sets, you don't think about position, you don't think about title. You don't think about abilities. You don't think about wealth. No, when you think about character, it's not the exterior so much as it is what is inside. Character is the core of a person. Character is not what you appear to be. Character is who you are. It's here. We gave the illustration last week of, I took a, a mustard bottle and I, I filled it with ketchup and, and, and from the outside it looked like mustard. You couldn't tell there was ketchup in it, but it wasn't until that bottle was squeezed and the pressure was on that what was inside came out and what was inside proved that what it looked like on the outside really was nothing of what it really was on the inside. And so what made that mustard is not what the outside said. What makes it mustard is what is on the inside. You know, so much in our lives, you know, character is shown by what comes out of your life when the pressure is on. You know, in order to get that out, in order to find out what was in that bottle, we had to put pressure and squeeze it. And that's true in our own lives. When the pressure is on in your life and in my life, we find out who we are when we're squeezed. 
You're not defined by your circumstances, but you're revealed by your circumstances. See, as God wants to form in us character, he wants our character, not the external, but the internal to become more like him. That when we are squeezed, we see more of him than we do the world. And the truth is that we're always going to see some of the world in us when we're squeezed because we will never become totally like Christ until we die and join him. This is a lifelong process. But as we are squeezed and we see in our lives through pressures, you know, James says, hey, consider pure joy because God is shaping you and he's forming you. So God allows these trials in our lives so he can reveal to us what's on the inside. And so many times... When we see what's in the inside, we go, oh, God, I don't like what I see. And so our response to that so many times is the wrong thing. Let's quit squeezing the bottle. Pray that God takes the pressure away because I don't like what comes out. Let's push it down to the bottom and pretend that it's not really there. And God says, no, that's not how you get ketchup out of a mustard bottle. No, you've got to squeeze it until it's all gone, wash it out, and put in there what needs to happen. And it's so true of our lives. God, because he loves us, will allow us to go through things that reveal us, the core, the character of who we are when the pressure is on. And so when we come face to face with the ugliness of what we see inside of us, how we respond to that is in key. If we choose to try and push it back down and pretend that there's mustard in the mustard bottle, not ketchup, then we're fooling ourselves. Now, what we do is we go, God, I don't like what I see. Lord Jesus, would you transform me? Would you forgive me? Would you help me? And this is a lifelong process for us. It's not something that happens overnight. The Christ-likeness is not produced by imitation. It's not something fake. Being like Christ is only produced by inhabitation, when you allow Christ to come and live and dwell inside of you, the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you will become like Jesus. We understand this. I gave this illustration last week too. If you take a northerner and you place them in the south, whether they like it or not, in a matter of time, they will begin sounding like southerners. If you take a southerner and place them up north, if we take somebody from one part of the world, we have plenty of people from all parts of the world here, and place them on this platform and somebody from another part of the world, and take to close your eyes, you can probably guess which part of the world with pretty good accuracy they're from, simply by the way that they sound. Why? Because we tend to sound like the people we hang with. Right? So the idea behind this is this, is that if you're squeezed and what comes out of you is worldly stuff, there's a good chance you're spending a whole lot of time hanging out with the world rather than hanging out with Christ. And if you're squeezed and Christ comes out, like I said, there's always some ketchup in our mustard bottles, right? There's always some of that world because we're not perfect. But the goal is that we spend more time with Christ and over time more of Christ comes out of us than the world. And that's character. And that's what God has for us. But this is, comes only by him living and dwelling in us. And it is important to understand this doesn't happen overnight. That it does take a lifetime. And it will only happen as you grow. If you missed last week's message, you can, you can get it. I want to encourage you to get it. Um, you can just go to the website and listen to it. Or if you want to purchase it, you can do that too. But get it. Because we're going to kind of pick up from there this morning. Continue to talk about becoming more like Christ. This shaping of your life 
takes place over time, and it only happens as you grow. God wants you to grow. God wants you to grow in him. His goal for you is for you to mature and develop the characteristics of Jesus. That's his goal. You know, as a pastor, I get to see a lot of babies when they're born. And I'm just going to confess. I confess a lot of things up here. You know, I go into these rooms and people go, oh, this baby looks just like you. And I just don't say anything. Right? Oh, it looks just like you, mom. Oh, he looks just like you, dad, or whatever. And, they, you know, the parents get all kind of proud or whatever. I don't see it. I just don't. I mean, it's a baby. Right? Like, like short of having the same skin color or hair... And if you're my child, you have no idea you're my child. Courtney was bald for two years. None of my kids have red hair. But you know what? I, I just don't see it. And so people say, I've even had people come up and go, oh, it looks just like you. Go, That's not my baby. <laughs> you know, so we know everybody just lies about this anyway because it's the appropriate thing to do. I remember one day we were babysitting Pastor Reddy and some of those kids, and we were holding, I think it was, it was uh, Allie, and we're at the grocery store, and these confused people came up. They're like, oh, she's precious. And we're like, oh, thank you. We just decided to act like Allie was ours. You know, oh, they're kind of looking at us, and, and we're looking like, just waiting for them to go, Ish, she looks just like you, which she looks nothing like us. <laughs> but we're like, yeah, does she look like us? It was probably wrong, but anyway, it was fun. But, you know, the truth of it is, is that I don't think babies look a whole lot like their parents when they're, when they're born. You, you know what I see, though? What I see is that as I watch a child grow, I begin to see things that remind me of their parents. And it's not so much the external. The external is definitely there. But what I'm talking about is the characteristics that they show. Like you can begin to see and go, oh, there's some attitude there that reminds me of that kid child's mom. And you can go, oh, there's some. And with it, I mean, I don't mean bad attitude or, or whatever. I mean, I think of Gigi. And I look at Gigi, I see his little Puerto Rican attitude, and I go, that is Mary right there. And, but we, we do that, right? And, and, we do, and I can see some of these behavior and the characteristics of these children as they grow. The good, the bad, the ugly. But as they grow, we begin to see things internally. And, you know, if you're a husband and wife, you blame it on your spouse. Like, oh, that's, you know, you're just like your mom or you're just like your dad or whatever it may be. But the truth is that as we grow, we see more of who that person is. And God's goal is the same for us, that as we grow in him, that people will see in us more of him. Not the external, not the abilities, not the personality, in our actions and in our attitudes and how we react and how we don't react. And so this is a process. But see, as, as cute as babies are, babies were meant to grow. You don't want to be changing diapers for 45 years. Right? I mean, it's just not cute anymore after a certain amount of time. Babies were meant to grow, and so are we. And, and sadly to say today that millions of Christians grow older, but they actually never grow up. I'm going to step on toes this morning. You just need to know that. But you know what? It's important because, you know, when I look at my life, as well, if I'm honest with myself, I have to go down to where I really am, not where I wish I was or what I pretend to be, but really where I am and go, someone, what's the core of who you are? What is the root? What is the ugliness? What is real? And then dig that up as ugly as it is and go, okay, God, this is what I see 
in me through your word. This is what you're shedding a light on, and I don't like it, and I don't have the power to change it, but you do. And what I want to do is bring it into the light and say, God, would you help me become more like you? And as a church, we've got to do the same thing. Otherwise, we don't grow. See, so many Christians, they grow older, but they never grow up. There is, they're stuck in this perpetual spiritual infancy. And no matter how long they've been in church, they remain in diapers and booties for sometimes a lifetime. You know, it's interesting how today we, we measure spiritual maturity. It seems like the, the measurement that we seem to use the most is, is that we look at biblical knowledge or information and doctrine. And if someone seems to be well-versed or have scriptures memorized or whatever, we look at them as if they're mature. And, and while knowledge is certainly a measurement of maturity, it isn't the whole story. Because, you know, I've met a lot of people that can rattle off a lot of things and tell me a lot of scriptures and, and talk about it and know doctrines. Um, but the truth of the matter is when it comes to spiritual maturity, they're babies, and they've been babies for many, many years. They just haven't grown. See, spiritual maturity isn't head knowledge. It, it's far deeper than that. See, the real measurement of Christian maturity is measured by how you think. The real measurement of where you are with Christ is how you think. And the measurement of how you think isn't told by what you say. The measurement of how you think is always shown by how you act and what you do. See, before an action can ever take place, it starts with a thought. And so if you're looking at your life and you go, okay, where am I with Christ really? Then the answer to that question is, what am I doing? Not what am I saying. Not what would I like to do, but what am I doing? And the answer to that question will tell you where you are really with Christ, whether you are an immature Christian or a mature Christian. Paul concluded that thinking of others is the mark of maturity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know, he talks about love. He's using it as, as he talks about the gifts and how the gifts should be operated in. Um, but we can take it out of context and also use it and it applies. But he says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put childish ways beside me. When I ask you real quick, when we think about the first part of that, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. How do children really think, talk, and reason? Come on, moms, help me out here. Their chief concern is who? Themselves. Right? I mean, everything is dictated about what is best, in their opinion, for themselves. And so Paul is basically saying, hey, when I was a child... This is how I acted. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. See, the Bible says this. It says, stop thinking like children. It says, in regard to evil, be infants. But in your thinking, be adults. Babies by nature are completely selfish. 
I have never, and yes, I'm talking about your children too, met a baby that really was like, you know what, I'm not going to cry tonight because mom needs some sleep. <laughs> right? right? If your child is different, please let me know. I've never met a baby that was more interested in sharing its stuff with other babies than keeping it to themselves. No, why? What happens with our children? Babies, when they want something, they cry. It's all about me. And it needs to be all about them. Why? Because they're babies. Right? It's what we expect. So babies are completely selfish. They're self-consumed. They, they wake up in the middle of the night with no regard for the other family members, their brothers, their sisters, their parents, and how much sleep we have or have not had how rough dad's day's been or mom's day's been, and they wake up in the middle of the night and they don't think, oh, let me just hold off and wait till morning. No, they want what they want and they want it now. And so we have to get up in the middle of the night, tired, exhausted, and, and, and Lori would look at me and go, we? But anyway, and we go and we, and we meet their needs and we pour into them. And, and, and moms, you can preach this better than I can, but babies are completely selfish. They are incapable of giving. Babies can only receive. They can't give anything else out. They take and they take. Babies are the chief, chiefs of consumers. They take and they take and they take and they never put back into the family. And so this immature thinking that's being talked about, see, when Paul says, hey, when I was a child, I felt like a child, He's actually referring to spiritual immaturity, and he's actually making and drawing conclusions that, that there are so many spiritual babies in the Christian walk today. There are a ton of spiritual babies. You may have been in church for 100 years, but you're still in Pampers. It just is. And, and how you can find out if that's you is simply by asking the question, how do I think? How do I act? Many people never grow beyond that kind of thinking. Scripture tells us that selfish thinking is the source of sinful behavior. Romans 8.5 says those who live following their sinful Selves think only about things that their sinful selves want. The Bible makes it clear how mature Christians not only think, but how mature Christians act. See, even so many of the Christians that can quote Scripture, and they may have been in church all their lives, but so many of them, their chief concern is themselves. Their chief concern is their convenience. All they know how to do is receive. They don't know how to give. They focus on themselves at the expense of others. You know, it's interesting that um, statistics say that there are 10% of the people in a church that do all of the work and 90% of the people that basically don't. That translated, this is just church across the board, says that there are 90% that are immature baby Christians and 10% that 
that are mature. And because glad tidings is not exempt from that, that means that in this church there are 90% of you that are spiritually infants that know how to receive and only about 10% that actually know how to give. Ouch. These are statistics. When you preach a service like this, the typical response, or the responses are two ways. The one response is this. I don't think I like this message. (laughs) I'm not getting anything out of it. I think I'm going to go find another church. If that's you, you got a diaper on. The other response to that is that some of the 10% actually do this. They actually go, you know, someone, I've got to do more. And I go, you're already doing seven things. Like, you can't. We're going to wear you out. We're going to burn you out. And they go, no. See, it's just, I've got to do more. There's got to be more that can be done. And so this typically seems to be what happens. In church, the reality of it is, is that God wants us to grow far beyond that infancy level. The measurement of your infancy or your maturity is based on you and your actions, not what you say, but what you do. And so if you're looking at yourself right now, and you ask yourself this, you say, basically, okay, God, where am I? If we're going to dig deep into our lives and say, God, where am I? God, your desire for me is to become more like you. Your desire for me is to grow. So where am I in this growth chart? Where am I? Am I a child? Am I a teenager? Am I uh, a mature Christian? And then you look at yourself and you go, okay, it's got nothing to do with what you say. It's got nothing to do with your head knowledge, but it's got everything to do with what you do. See, immature baby Christians think chiefly of themselves. They think chiefly of what they can receive. They jump from church to church going, okay, what does this church have to offer me? I want this and I want that and I want this. And most of them never really think about what do I have to offer God in this church? What can I receive? It's consumerism. What can I do? Pastor Randy talked about this a couple weeks ago. What can I get? What can I get? What can I get? Me, 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 me. If that is you, then what God is saying about you is that you are a spiritual baby and he has more for you than that. If you look at your life and you should be able to look at your life and go, okay, listen, based on what I am doing, See, if you are mature, your thinking, your transforming, your, your mind has been transformed by the way that you think. If you are a mature Christian, it's no longer about you, but it's about others. It's about others finding Christ. It's about recognizing the mission of who God is, what Jesus did. Jesus died for others. He gave his life Instead of saving his life, he gave his life that others might live. And if we're going to be transformed into the image of God and the thinking of God, our minds must and our thought process must begin to look like his. And if our thought process doesn't look like his, that we would rather let other people die to save ourselves, you look nothing like Jesus. Nothing like Jesus. 
And so what we understand is that when we begin to lay ourselves down, and this is all scriptural, when we begin to say, listen, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's not about me. It's about other people. My chief concern is other people finding Christ. When we think that way, our actions will reflect it. And so the question is simply this. If you want to know where you are with God, what are you doing and how are you serving him This is not someone trying to build and recruit leaders. This is just the reality. What are you doing? Not what are you saying. What are you doing? What are you doing? Is it more about you? Is it more about which song you like to sing? Any of you think, I really don't like this song. I wish Pastor Marine would play a different song. Anybody you think, you know what? It's just too cold in here. And it's cold. I think next year, next week I'm going to go to church that actually has heat. We should have heat next year, week. But was it that? Was it more about, you know what? I, I, I would do this, but I, you know what? It just kind of interferes with my life. See, your maturity level is not your ability to quote scripture. It's not your ability to give a prophetic word. It's nothing to do with it. It's got everything to do with self-sacrifice and others, not self. It's about others. It's about laying your life down. It's not about how you can come and tell us what we should be doing. It's about you. The question is, what are you doing? Not for me, for God. And a good measurement of it is what, is what are you doing here in this church? Because God placed you here. Why else would you be here? If God placed you here, he placed you here with responsibility and with something to do. And are you doing it? Or are you sitting and waiting for everybody else around you to do it for you? See, growth, growth is not something that happens overnight. Growth is something that has to be intentional. You know, it's not automatic. There are plenty of room for spiritual babies. We have to have them. When you're born again, guess what? You are infancy, but there's no room for spiritual babies that are 45 years old. They were born again 45 years ago, 10 years ago, three years ago. You should be growing. You know, when we take a, a, a baby, when a baby is born, you don't just go, oh, great, this is a nice baby. We put this baby here, walk away, and come back five years when, it, when, when the kid's five. No, we have to be intentional about raising that kid up. You know, parents here, we know how we do that. There's a time where we need to be pouring and feeding that child because the child cannot do it itself. And there's plenty of room for, for, in the church for spiritual infants coming in. They need to be here. But we've got to have people that are actually pouring into them and learn to serve and actually learn to feed them. And if you raise your kids any way like I've raised my kids, I don't do everything for them all the time. You know how you keep a baby a baby? You respond to everything that they cry about. Right? Let me meet this need. Let me make sure that you're happy. Let me, listen, babies, there's a difference between a real need and a want. Moms, dads, you know this, right? If you reply, respond to every time that baby cries, there's a time where, I remember my dad came to me and said, someone, you have to figure out what is a need in, in, in your child's life and what is a want. And sometimes you have to stick your head in and go, yep, you're fine, you're just fussy, and walk away and be okay with that child crying. Because that's how they grow. 
You don't give them everything that they want all the time. No. In fact, as they grow, you feed them. But you don't just feed them. You teach them to what? Begin to feed themselves. You don't want to be feeding your son when he's 27. Okay. We're laughing. But this is a picture of some of you. I'm sorry. It just is. I don't want to be feeding them at 27, and yet, yet, yet they demand it, and they go, oh, okay, no, okay, listen, listen. At some point, you go, no, I'm not going to cater to that. That's fleshy, and that's infants. That sound like an infant. And so what happens is then we begin to work at, at our children. We begin to say, listen, let's teach you how to use a toaster. Let's teach you how to use a microwave. And we begin to teach them how to cook. We begin to teach them how to, how to walk. And this is how we want our kids, kids to grow. We understand this is what we do. It's what we do. We, we understand this, yet somehow in our spiritual lives, we seem to miss this, and we get stuck at infancy forever. But see, God wants you and I to grow. He doesn't want us to be spoon-fed forever. He wants us, yes, there's a time for that, but he wants us to become part of the contributing factor, the contributing body to his cause and to his mission. And as our kids get older, what do we do? They begin to have chores. If they don't, they should. And we begin to enforce those chores and make sure those chores are why we want them to contribute to the family. They're part of this family. Let's help. We get the strength in numbers. Otherwise, mom and dad wear themselves out forever. And so we begin to give them chores and give them assignments. And so likewise, even as we see this, you realize that your own family is an example for you of how God wants you and I to grow. And so God says, I'm not interested in you being an infant. I'm interested in you growing. You must grow, but growing is not automatic. It is intentional. It takes a commitment. You have to decide to grow. You have to make an effort to grow. You have to persist in growing. Discipleship or the process of becoming like Christ always begins with a decision. Matthew 5, verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And our hunger and thirst is like, I want this. I'm craving it. I want this in my life. 2 Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Psalms 1, verse 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Spiritual growth takes commitment. When I say commitment, what do you think of? What's commitment? Sorry? Sacrifice, consistency, I think those line up with commitment. What else is commitment? Think about your marriage. What do you want in, in a committed relationship? Faithfulness, dedication, loyalty. See, commitment defined means an obligation, a loyalty, a devotion, a dedication. The synonyms for commitment are this allegiance, attachment, fidelity, dedication, devotedness, devotion, faith, faithfulness, loyalty, steadfastness, just to name a few. That's what I want in my marriage. That sounds like a pretty good thing, right? That's what commitment is, this loyalty, this dedication. The antonyms to, to, to commitment are this, disloyalty, faithlessness, falseness, falsity, infidelity, treachery, 
unfaithfulness. Let me ask you a question. Can you have half-hearted allegiance? Can you have half-hearted devotion? How many of you want your spouse to be half-heartedly dedicated to you? Right? Like, hey, uh, you've got most of me most of the time. How would that work in the vows? Probably not very well. No, we understand, man. I, I, want, I want Lori's dedication. I want her loyalty. I want her faithfulness. That's what I want in a commitment from my wife, and I know it's what she wants from me. I want that from my kids as well. Faithfulness or faithlessness? Which is better? Fidelity or infidelity? But see, we live in a world today where people will commit to something as long as it doesn't interfere with their lives. See, we've cheapened commitment. Commitment, I mean, if you look at marriages in Hollywood, that's not commitment. That's emotional reaction until it becomes inconvenient or something you have to work at. Then you pull the ripcord, you jettison, it's gone. Like, I'm out of this thing because I don't want it to have to cost me too much. See, commitment is basically defined by the world today and what is convenient for me. It's not commitment. It's based on convenience, not devotedness. Commitment in marriage means very little today. In fact, unfortunately, we see greater commitment to golf, football, sports, than we do spouses. We see people kind of pour in and pour in. They can tell you everything about their favorite sports team, their positions and their stats. They can't tell you much about their own children. We know how to be committed. The problem is that we take our commitment, and it's easy to be committed to things that we find ourselves chief of or the chief beneficiary of. You can be committed to fishing, you can be committed to success or money or your careers. But again, it's easy to be committed when the chief beneficiary of that commitment is yourself. And so we allow ourselves to be committed to those things at the expense of others, and that's not commitment at all. See, the truth is that whatever we are committed to, that's what we become. We become what we're committed to. Whatever your focus is, whatever your drive is, that's what's going to make you who you are. Nothing shapes your life more than the commitments that you choose to make. Nothing. Nothing. You or your commitments, they can develop you and they can also destroy you. But your commitments, either way, will define you. What are you committed to? You know, every choice has eternal consequences. So Peter warns us. He says, you'd better choose wisely. He says this, since everything around us is going to melt away, what holy, godly lives you should be living. He's basically saying, man, commitment, do you really want to commit to something that is so temporary, it's just going to disappear and dissolve in your hands? Yet so many of us do that. Or do you want to commit to something that is real? I love what John Maxwell says here. He gives us I think it's a great illustration um, of commitment. I'll just read what he, what, he, what he says. He said, a hen and a pig were talking in the barnyard one day. And the hen was so proud and talking on and on about how glad she was that she and the pig could help the farmer and his family by supplying them with ham and eggs for their breakfast. 
The pig, however, was less enthusiastic about it. He replied, that's easy for you to say. For you, it's just a donation. For me, it's total commitment. It's funny, but I don't think it's a better example of commitment. Sadly, in the church, we have people that like to give donations, but they don't like to give commitment. And even with their donations, their donations are iffy based on convenience. Commitment is everything. God doesn't want a donation from you. God doesn't want a generous donation from you. He wants your commitment. He wants all of it. Guys, look, I'm not here to tickle ears. I'm not here to try and just build this and tell everybody. I'm here to say, I want to see the kingdom of God built. And I want to see us do it. I don't want to see us fall into the statistics of church and just Christianity. I want to see us be where God wants us to be, and I want to see us do what God calls us to do. And that, my friends, takes commitment. It doesn't take a donation. That takes more than just convenience. Once in a while. No, it takes commitment. Commitment means sacrifice. Jesus committed to you and to me. And what did that commitment look like? It looked like him on a cross where he said, you know, it's not so much about what's convenient for me. It's not so convenient for me to hang on a cross and die for you. But because my mind is on you first and others first, I will die to make sure that you live. And see, when we were created to become more and more like him, that kind of thought process needs to transform. Guess what? He wrestled with it. It wasn't easy for him. The Garden of Gethsemane wasn't a picnic. No, he was wrestling, and it was hard because it is hard. It is not easy. Sacrifice is not easy. Sacrifice is not cheap. Sacrifice is sacrifice. Like when you look at the Old Testament, they didn't say, bring your half-dead goat and sacrifice that. That was dying anyway. No, it said, take the one that is perfect and pure. I heard a story this one day. This, this pastor said this lady came up to her and to him and he said, hey, listen, she says, I just bought this brand new piano and so I want to give my old one to the church. He said, oh, that's nice. You think God wants your old one? I think he wants your new one. She brought the new one into the church. Just to say that sometimes our attitude and our thinking is wrong. Like, I'm done with this now. I'll give my leftovers to God and that's going to be glorifying to him. Really? Really? So, so that translated in our lives is that after I'm done serving myself, any leftover time that I have, I'll give to God. You're welcome, Lord. Don't thank me now. It's the least I can do. And God says, you make me sick. I'm just going to be real. Come on, guys. Come on. Is that what you want from your husband or your wife? Look, we live in a world that doesn't talk like this. We live in a world that doesn't understand commitment. Jesus wants our total commitment. He hates half-hearted commitment. 
He says, you cannot serve two masters. In Matthew 6, 24, you'll either love the one, despise, or hate the other. He says in Revelation 3, 16, something we know well, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You understand that lukewarm has to have some heat? And it has to have some cold? It's not because you are freezing cold. It says, no, it's because you're balanced. We love that word. I like to have balance. You know, serve myself a little bit and serve God a little. God's not interested in your balance. He's not interested in my balance. He's interested in our whole hearts. And he says this lukewarmness is partly hot and partly cold, and, and it's just whatever blends together. Lukewarm looks like a balance of hot water and cold water, doesn't it? I mean, really, isn't it? It's a balance of hot water and cold water. Together, that creates lukewarm. And God says, I will spit you out of my mouth. You're neither hot, you're neither cold. I wish you were one. And I'll be both. These aren't my words, these are his. Jesus is looking for a total commitment from you and a total commitment from, from me. He's not looking for the chicken, he's looking for the pig. Are you given eggs or are you given ham? And we see this consistently through Scripture. John chapter 12, verse 25 to 26. Jesus makes this abundantly clear. He says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. And, well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. Well, you can look where Jesus was and you can see where he was. And he says, if you love me, you will be where I am. And where was he? Laying down his life for others. Matthew chapter 19, this rich young ruler says to him, and says, hey, comes to Jesus and says, how can, I, how can I be perfect? How can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to the rich young ruler, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. Let me translate that for you, make it real simple. He says, if you love me, think of others first and deny yourself. Don't be so consumed with yourself and your wealth and what you have. Think about them first. And then come and follow me. And it says the rich young ruler, he went away sad because he had great wealth. That interpreted basically means that rich young ruler couldn't get over himself. He couldn't think of others above himself. And Jesus said basically, that's how you become perfect. That's how you do it. Others first, you second, come and follow me. And when I think about commitment, what comes to my mind over the last between yesterday and today, is Jesus getting out, oh, Jesus calling Peter out of the boat. You know, you see Jesus, and they're terrified. It's in kind of stormy water, and they think he's a ghost. And, and he looks, and Peter calls to him after Jesus says, no, it's me, don't be afraid. And Peter says, Lord, if that is you, then tell me to come to you. And Jesus says to him, Peter, come to me. I tell you, man, that is commitment. To step out of your comfort, to step out of that boat into stormy waters to look at Jesus and go, no, I'm going to walk to him. I want to be with him so badly. I will join him in the storm. I will join him in the impossible. I will join him in the midst of my fear because I see him there. That takes commitment. I guess you could have said, okay, Jesus, I want to hang out with you as soon as you get to where the boat is. You know, we can pick on Peter all the time, but Peter walked on water. If any of you have, please let me know. I will sit down and you preach. 
I have not walked on water. That's not why I'm preaching. I'm just saying that's commitment, man. Too many of us are hanging back in the boat, in the comforts of the boat, in the storm, praying that Jesus will join us in our storm where God says, I'm right here. Come to me. Come be part. I love that. And I love that. Where is Jesus? He's in the midst of the impossible. He's in the midst of the scariness, of the fear, of the obstacle. He's walking. We sang the song this morning, how he walked on oceans deep. I mean, that's where he beckons us to come and join him. Look, it takes commitment to go, I'm going to leave this comfort, comfort of this boat or the security of this boat. I'm going to step out and walk to Jesus. That takes commitment. And yet he got distracted. But man, it wasn't until after he walked on water for a while. In order for us to grow, it takes a commitment to grow, a commitment to Christ, to our relationship with him. James 4, 8 says this, you come near to God and he will come near to you. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Philippians 2, chapter 12, verse 13 says this, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. This verse shows two parts to spiritual growth. Work out and work in. The workout is your responsibility. And the work in, as Rick Warren says, is God's role. And spiritual growth is this combination of efforts between you and the Holy Spirit. This verse isn't written to unbelievers, it's written to believers. It's not about how to be saved, or it's about how to grow. It doesn't say work out your salvation because you can't add anything to what Christ has already done. So it's not about working for your salvation. It's about working out your salvation. We understand this when we look at it in this context. When you work out, when you exercise, you work out not to get a body. You already have one. You work out to develop it. The farmer works the land not to get land, but to develop the land. And so when you're born again, you've been given your salvation. But he says, work it out with fear and trembling. That means you need to develop it. You need to work at it. You must be satisfied. You must begin to grow. Once you have that new birth in him, once you have that new life, you're responsible to to develop it. That means you must be committed to it and take it seriously. I'm going to ask Pastor Rainey to come. He's going to come and he's going to play. And I just want to say this. The reality of it is our commitment is cheap. The reality of it is, is that. Guys, this is just what it is. The reality is this. I'll give you an example. A lot of times we respond emotionally to things. You know, I'm not... You guys know I'm not all about money. Um, but you know what? Money certainly is a thermometer of where our hearts are. We did a series on stewardship. It was actually amazing. We did a, stewardship, a series on stewardship. It went really, really well. And actually the next month, it was a miracle. And God provided for us. But it was interesting. The next month, tithing within this church. And the stewardship series wasn't all about finances. It was about life. It was about um, you know, your jobs, it was about everything. And a small portion was finances. Tithing jumped by $20,000 in one month. 
And the next month, it was up by 13,000. And then over the next few months, it dropped and dropped and went back to what it was. How's that for commitment? You know what that says? It says, I mean, we expected it to jump a little bit. But what it says to me is this, is that we respond emotionally, but we lack commitment. You know why money is such a thermometer? It's this. Money gives you and it puts you in this position to really look at where you are. Because when you give money, it means you don't have money. When you give money, it's a sacrifice because you think about all the things you could do with that money if you kept it. And God likes us to have those wrestling because that's when it becomes a sacrifice. And so we talk about it. We talk about others. Here's what's sad. We have a church of about 250 to 300 people. We have 16 parking spaces. We're not a church of 250 to 300 people. We're a bigger church than that. But we're limited by our surroundings. And what we hear from so many people is, we need to pray for a bigger building. But the reality is, if God's people were more committed to him, we'd be in a bigger building already. And I'm talking about you. The reality is, is that if we actually gave, see that 20,000, when we actually did the numbers, go, okay, we do the demographics and go, based on what people attend and, and the income that comes into people's families, yes, that's actually accurate. If people actually tithed and actually gave to God, that interpreted means if people actually cared more about others than they did themselves, If we had $20,000 more a month, we would already be in a bigger building. If we had a bigger building, we'd have more seating for more people. We could minister to more people. But what it says to me and what it says to us and what it says to God is that we're still more concerned with ourselves than we are about reaching other people for God. We sang this morning, no other name. There is no other name in my heart except the name Jesus. And I want to tell you that's not true. It's not true. For a lot of you in here, there are a lot of other names in your heart, and it's not Jesus, it's you. A lot of us are lifting our names higher than the name of Christ in the way that we live, in the way that we talk, in the way that we act. God doesn't want a song from you. He doesn't want lip service. He doesn't want some fancy worship. He wants it to be real, and he wants it to be genuine. Guys, it's not about a song. It's not even about money. God doesn't need your money, but he gives you an opportunity to show you where your heart is. And he wants you to be part of his kingdom. He wants you to come and go, oh, I'm so concerned. God, I love you so much. I want to lay down my life because I want to make sure that other people have this encounter with, with you that I have. And so I want to be part of what you're doing. What actually takes place in our lives is we elevate ourselves above God. We give him lip service and we give him leftovers. And we just say that that's worship and growth. And it is not. It's disgusting to him. There's no other name. There's no other name in your heart besides Jesus. Is that true? Is that true? Is your life really, because we sang all these songs, and we didn't set it up this way. It's just the way it happened. We sang, God, it's, my life is all about you. Let me ask you, where are you? Where are you? I'll tell you now, and this is not a plea for help. We need you, and you're not here. Don't come and tell me about what we could be doing more. Come and show me what you can do. Come and tell me what God has called you to do, and join the fight as we strive 
to lead others to Christ. As I watch, you know how many men and women I watch burn out? They burn out all the time because they come to me and they go, someone, I've got to do more, I've got to do more. And I go, you're doing so much already. You know how many people I've seen take a hit? Because they're so passionate and they get so tired. Well, I watch so many people sit in the background and criticize and be complacent and tell me how we can do things better, how we can better serve. Where are you, men and women of God? Where are you? Where are you? Are you really fighting this fight? Are you really in a battle? Are you really concerned? I don't want a knee-jerk reaction. I really have gone farther than this than I ever thought I would go. I didn't go this way in first service, but I don't want a knee-jerk reaction. I don't want an emotional response. And every time we preach something like this, we, we get some people that are genuine, some people that respond, and we watch the commitment die off. I don't want a donation. I don't want an egg. God doesn't want all of that. He doesn't want your lukewarmness. He wants your total and utter commitment. He doesn't want your leftovers. And you can go to another church and you can receive all that you want to receive and you can sit there and be nothing and just receive and receive and receive. But I want to tell you, you will stand before God. And he will say, where were you in my kingdom? Were you a fighter in my army? What were you doing? He'll look at your heart. He won't look at your head knowledge. He won't look at your scripture, the ability to memorize scripture. He won't look at how much you know doctrine. He will look at you and say, where were you? I placed you in the most unreached part of the United States and you sat in a pew and you did nothing. Let me tell you something. If God has brought you here, he didn't bring you here to sit. And if this is not the church where God wants you, if you feel uncomfortable, then man, go to a church where you need to be. But when you're there, you better serve there. You better pour out your life. God's not interested in half-hearted commitment any more than you are. Lives are at stake. It's about others. I just want to ask you, as you look at your life, what are you doing? I mean, be honest. Where's your maturity level at? Are, are, you, are you a spiritual infant? Or are you a mature Christian? Is your chief focus you? Or is your chief focus others? And let it change today. And take it before God and say, God, I've made my God out of myself made a God out of my things and my wants and my time, and I am sorry. You know what repenting is? Repenting is a change in the way that you think. Repenting is not worse. And a change in the way that you think leads to a change in the way that you act. The altar call this morning is not here. The altar call this morning is in here. The altar call isn't lip service. The altar call isn't public display for everybody else to see. The altar call is here. When I ask you to stand this morning, I've asked Randy to sing this song that we sang earlier this morning. This is what I want you to do. I want you just to sing, and I really want you to ask yourself, God, is this really my cry? Is this really my heart? Because the words that we sang this morning are powerful in this song.
And my prayer is that it will become the cry of your heart. God loves you. God has a plan and a purpose for you. God has amazing things for you, but he wants you to commit to him. He wants you to sell out for him. He wants you to run after him. Don't sell yourself short. Give it all to God. Amen? Take my life I lay it down At the cross Where I am found All I have I give to you My God
Thank you for your grace and for your love, for your compassion in our lives, Lord God. God, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are so gracious to forgive us, and we ask you to forgive us now. We ask you to forgive us for elevating ourselves and so many other things above your name. God, the truth is that we don't have the strength to change through the power of your spirit, we can. Now we ask you, Lord Jesus, to step into this sin and wash us and cleanse us. And God, we pray that the words of the song would be the cries of our hearts, Lord God. God, we know that this doesn't happen overnight, but God, let today be a new day. Let today be a new beginning, a fresh start. I want to grow and I want to know you more. And I want to love you more. And I want to reflect you more. Would you have your way in my life? And would you transform the lives of others through your living and dwelling in me? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.